Well, let's return to John chapter 5. In John chapter 5, where Jesus deliberately seeks out an afflicted man at the pool of Bethesda, and where he heals him on the Sabbath. Jesus instructed this man to take up his bed and walk on the Sabbath. Both Jesus and the man were therefore guilty of a Sabbath violation according to the Jewish leadership. Now, This man had been ill for some 38 years. His was not a life-threatening situation. And surely Jesus could have waited just one more day to heal him, but he doesn't. Jesus deliberately healed on the Sabbath, provoking an enormous controversy. And when Jesus responded to the charge of violating the Sabbath, his response just exploded an already volatile situation. Look at verse 17. But Jesus answered, my father is working until now, and I am working. Well, didn't God rest on the Sabbath? Now Jesus is bringing God the Father into this? And worse yet, his statement, my Father, implied his equality with God. That's how the Jews understood him. Look at verse 18. This is why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own Father, making himself equal with God. Well, was it possible the Jews simply misunderstood Jesus? No. The Jews heard him correctly. And in verses 19 through 29, which we worked through last week, and truly right down to the remainder of the chapter, Jesus goes on to just boldly assert his equality with the Father. Now, if someone were to confuse you with God the Father, how quickly would you disabuse him of that notion? Wait a minute, not me. And John fell at the feet of the bright angel in Revelation 22 and was about to worship an angel. The angel said, stop, you must not do that. Worship God. Well, how does Jesus respond when people accuse him of identifying himself with God? And let's just briefly review just a few verses that we worked through last week to really just sort of set the stage. And what I want to do this morning is to really explore some theology that we just had to pass over last week. So how does Jesus respond? Well, look at verse 19. Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. Jesus is so utterly dependent on the Father that quite literally, everything that He does, in everything that He does, He waits for the Father's initiative. He lives completely according to the plan and purpose of God. Now, that's not how I would respond. Look at verse 20. 
For the Father loves the Son and shows him all that he himself is doing. And greater works than these, the healing of the man at Bethesda, will he show him so that you may marvel. Well, Jesus is so loved by the Father, the Father can indeed reveal to Jesus everything that he is doing. Well, friends, God does not tell me everything that he's doing, but Jesus is not like me. Further, God can entrust even greater works to Jesus so that we can all marvel. And what sort of works are we talking about? Well, next verse, verse 21. For as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life, notice these words, to whom He will. The Father entrusts the raising of the dead to Jesus. He does not entrust the raising of the dead to you, or to me, or to an angel, but He does to Jesus. Now understand, God is not merely handing off power to Jesus to be able to perform a miracle. God does, in fact, do that with other men, with other prophets. But God is actually entrusting the resurrection of the dead to Jesus' own will. Of his own prerogative, Jesus raises whomever he will. Jesus is literally making his will equivalent to God's will. Now imagine I said to you, well, my will is exactly equal to God's will. You would say, you are blaspheming. And Jesus is not done. Verse 22, For the Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son. God completely trusts all judgment to Jesus, and he can do that because there is not a shadow of difference between them. It's no secret that no two Supreme Court justices, or any justices for that matter, agree on everything. They simply don't. But that's not the case with Jesus and the Father. The Father can entrust all judgment to Jesus because they are completely aligned One mind, one will. Now, why has God given to Jesus the right to judge? Keep reading, verse 23. Here's why, that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Well, friends, God intends for you to honor Jesus with the same reverence and worship that you would give to him. Well, that's not true of me or an angel. Now, in verse 18, recall the Jews were disturbed by Jesus making himself equal with God. And far from backing down, Jesus insists that he is worthy of the same honor as the Father. Jesus insists that if you do not honor the Son, you are actually not honoring the Father. As I mentioned last week, this verse ought to silence the deist or many a Christian nationalist who claims in God we trust, but fails to acknowledge Jesus. Friends, in God we trust is heresy unless you honor Jesus with the same honor with which you honor God. 
it is impossible to honor God and reject Jesus. That's what he's saying. And that's why Jesus can say in verse 24, Truly, I truly, 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 I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but is passed from death to life. To believe the words of Jesus, to believe his claim that he came from the Father, is to have eternal life. The Jews believed that God's words could indeed give someone eternal life. And now Jesus is saying, well, my words do the very same thing. So how can anyone read this passage without recognizing that Jesus, friends, is no mere man and no mere angel. Jesus is one with the Father. Now, as I mentioned, we need to give some additional attention this morning, in particular to verses 24 and 25. And then I want to come back and develop verses 26 and 27 a little also. In verses 24 and 25, Jesus is actually gesturing in a direction that the rest of the New Testament will follow. These verses are like a photograph of a mountain range where the geography just gets flattened out into two-dimensional space. But if you were to walk into that photograph, you would discover hundreds of miles between mountain peaks. Let's read these two verses, 24 and 25, with a question. Here's the question, what time frame does Jesus have in view? Verse 24. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come in the judgment, but has passed from death to life. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. All right? So what time frame is in view here? Present? As in present from Jesus' perspective? Future? Or perhaps both? Theologians often speak of the already, not yet, character of several scriptural passages, particularly in the New Testament. And friends, that is not some sort of double speak. And hopefully that isn't news to you because I have commented on this phenomenon previously. We spent some time with this when we were in Romans, and I think it's due time that we spend a little bit more time with this. Already, not yet. Another term that theologians use is inaugurated eschatology. Inaugurated eschatology. Inaugurated means what's already begun. You inaugurate something, you begin it. It begins. Whereas eschatology refers to the future. That's the doctrine of last things. And again, that's not doublespeak. That's just an honest attempt to wrestle with language like the language of verse 25 
An hour is coming and is now here. Well, which is it? D.A. Carson, widely regarded as the finest commentator on John, says of our text, this is perhaps the strongest affirmation of inaugurated eschatology in the fourth gospel. So what is this all about? And how does this just shape the way that I interpret the world and my place within the world? That's what I want to discover this morning. Before exploring this passage further, let's actually turn to a couple passages, actually just one, Romans chapter 8. And let's notice how this language turns up elsewhere in the New Testament. While you turn, what I want to do is just read to you two more passages in the writings of Paul. And you'll hear, I think, this sort of language. So you turn to Romans 8, all right? And while you're turning, let me read Colossians chapter 1 and verse 13. Here's what Paul says. Listen to the verb tenses. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness. Sounds like he's already done it, right? And transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. Okay, that's Colossians. Now here's the same guy, the Apostle Paul, Ephesians 6, verse 12. Our men read this on Wednesday night. Paul writes that we wrestle against the cosmic powers over this present darkness. Well, am I delivered from the darkness, as Paul says in Colossians, or am I still wrestling with it, as he says in Ephesians? The answer is yes, and the answer is no. I am delivered, and no, I'm not delivered. And is Paul contradicting himself? Well, certainly not. The truth is, positionally, I am delivered. Positionally, right now, I am in the kingdom. That's what Paul said. I've been transferred into the kingdom. I am liberated in Christ from the moment that I put my faith in Him. But how often... Do I not feel delivered experientially? I'm already delivered through Christ's cross, but I, friends, am not yet free from this present world. And this is why you have to put on the armor of God. Because there is a dark world out there. That's what Paul says in Ephesians. All right? So I think you get the gist of what we're talking about. Already, not yet. Right? Kind of sounds like already in some cases and not yet in other cases. All right, so here we are in Romans 8, and listen to how Paul describes our adoption. In the second half of verse 15, Romans 8, 15, second half, Paul says, You have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit of God already lives within me. And consequently, I am already adopted into the family of God. Friends, have you ever thought about just how presumptuous it is to pray in the Father's name? To actually pray the Lord's Prayer? Jesus says, pray this way. Our Father which art in heaven. Well, we're so used to that that we hardly stop to think about what we're saying 
our Father? Like, like Jesus and me? Like we have the same Father? The whole controversy back in John 5 was rooted in Jesus claiming to be God's Son. That was the whole controversy. It just blew up and they sought to kill Him. So are we now saying that God is our Father too? Yes. Why? Because we are already adopted. Every time you pray in the Father's name, you are claiming your adoption. He's already claimed you. Now, look at verse 23. Same guy, same chapter, same pen, probably. And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. Are you confused? I'm already adopted, so why are we eagerly waiting our adoption? That sounds like already Not yet. It's passages like these that give theologians the reason for speaking in this kind of already not yet language. This is why theologians speak of inaugurated eschatology. That is, in some sense, there are future future realities that are pulled back into the present. Now, you and I tend to relegate eschatology of the future exclusively to the future. But that's actually not entirely biblical. There are certain future realities that are brought into the present, specifically when Christ resurrected from the grave. For example, at the end of verse 23, Paul writes, We wait eagerly for the adoption of sons, As sons, the redemption of our bodies, that sounds like something future. Part of our adoption includes the redeeming of these bodies, but that actually already happened to Jesus on Easter morning, even though it hasn't happened to me yet. All right, so that's future. Nevertheless, earlier in the verse, Paul says that we already have, get this, the first fruits of the Spirit. The Spirit who resurrected Jesus on Easter morning has already been given to us. Why? Because we're adopted. We're already adopted. Now, because you have the Spirit then, positionally, the New Testament treats your resurrection as actually complete. Did you know this? It's like your resurrection is already done in some sense. You were already raised from the grave. When did that happen? With Christ. You're a new creature. You died on a Roman cross, my friends. Among those Judean hills some 2,000 years ago, you already died. And you already resurrected. Positionally, that is true because the Spirit unites me with Christ. But experientially, I'm still waiting for my new body. Christ has His, but I don't have mine yet. And I'm really looking forward to that day that I get it because I had back pain all this week. All right? That's not going to happen in my new body, I hope. Now, I do want to use an illustration that I've used previously, I think a couple years ago, and I think it really, really makes the point. 
All right. When Anne, my wife, traveled to China to adopt our son Asher, the Chinese government placed him in his mother's arms on August 22nd, 2016. Adopted kids, by the way, have like multiple special days. They get their adoption day, then they get the day they arrived home, then they get their birthday. It's like my kid gets three birthdays every year. Anyway, all right, don't feel sorry for him. August 22nd, 2016, at that that precise moment, all right, in the eyes of both the People's Republic of China and the United States government, I became his father. At that precise moment, Asher had a new last name, the name Cook, all right? And on August 22nd, 2016, Asher became my heir, At that moment, my will divided my possessions three ways and not two ways between my two biological children, right? From that very moment, Asher was, in a sense, possessed, all right, by a member of my family, my wife, as a guarantee that I would adopt him for life. And that's what the Spirit does for us. He claims us as the Father's possession, but Asher had not yet come home. It was another two weeks before he set foot on American soil. It was two weeks before I actually held him in my arms. So positionally, legally, before the law, I was Asher's father, August twenty second, 2016. But experientially, it was another two weeks before I really felt like his father. Now, of course, I'm not trying to compare my family to the Holy Trinity, all right? I'm just trying to simply explain the adoption metaphor, all right? So hopefully that all makes sense, the already, not yet. And with that in place, let's go back to John 5. And let's again probe our text with the question, which time frame does Jesus have in view? All right? John 5, and look again at verse 24. Truly, truly, Jesus says, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come in the judgment, but is passed from death to life. 2,000 years ago, Jesus spoke these words. At the moment that he spoke them, whoever embraced them just passed instantly from death to to life. Notice Jesus says he has eternal life. Not he will have it, he has it. Do you realize you're already living your eternal life? You're already living it. But isn't it the case that the person with that eternal life who already has it is still going to die? Yes. Biologically, the inner life of your cells is going to cease. Your breathing will cease. Your heart will stop. Nevertheless, Jesus can say the person who believes is all already. He's already just passed from life, I mean, from death right into life. From judgment, beyond judgment, right into life. Now, the Jews, like many other cultures around the world, believed that there was some sort of judgment to come at life's end. And that judgment would concern deeds done in our bodies. So how is it possible that a person could could die, but in the words of Jesus, not come into judgment? I mean, how is that even possible? 
Now, Jesus' statement must have just struck the Jews as theologically irresponsible, even preposterous. God has to judge all the dead, right? How does a person avoid future judgment? Now, as I mentioned at the outset, what Jesus is doing here is he's just gesturing in a direction that the rest of the New Testament is going to follow, all right? We know this from reading the rest of the New Testament, but the person is not judged in the future because his judgment already took place. His judgment already took place? Yeah, he doesn't come in the judgment. Look at the words, he does not come in the judgment. How is that possible? How does he avoid the judgment? Answer, Christ. He was already judged. It's not just that I avoided judgment, it's that I was judged in Christ. I was judged at Christ's cross. My sins were judged there. And I'm already resurrected with Christ. And Jesus so exhaustively and completely just took away our judgment that He can speak of our eternal life as already here positionally, even though you have not yet experienced it. You just already passed right through the judgment, right into eternal life. That's true of every believer. Now, verse 25 offers additional clarification. And if anything, the already not yet language becomes even clearer. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. All right, an hour is coming. That's the not yet. And is now here. That's the already. Now, locate the word when. All right, locate the word when. And read what follows. When the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God, and those who hear will live. Here's my question for you. Does that clause refer to the already or the not yet? Let me read it again. When the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God, and those who hear will live. Is that already or not yet? Or do we need another? I heard a yes. I heard a yes, all right, from Brother Mike. Yes, I think we need another option. I'm giving you a false dilemma. Listen to what Paul told the Ephesians. Paul said to the Ephesians, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins. And he goes on to say, Even when we were dead in our trespasses, God made us alive together with Christ and raised us up with Him and seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. He's speaking about a current reality. He's speaking of what's happened to us now already. I was born dead in sin and God raised me up with Christ. Positionally, that is true. I'm already resurrected from the dead with Christ. That is true positionally, but experientially, that's not yet true. In other words, I don't, I'm not living in my resurrected body at the moment, but I am already resurrected with Christ. All right? Now listen to what Paul told the Corinthians. Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. 
For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive, speaking of the future. But each in his own order. Here's the space and the geography between the mountains. Christ the firstfruits, then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. Well, that certainly sounds like not yet. So I'm already raised with Christ, but I'm not yet raised with Christ. So look again at our text. Look at the wind. When the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. That has already happened and that has not yet happened. That makes sense, doesn't it? Already you're raised with Christ, but you're still waiting for that glorious resurrection day. Already not yet. Now, let me just pause right here and ask the question, why does the New Testament use this kind of language? Once you're alert to it, you, you, you tend to pick up on it a lot more, and it begins to make a lot of sense, all right? But why does the New Testament actually speak this way? Well, let me give you a few reasons. Let's just go back for just a moment into Jewish culture and explain something that Christians often miss. I have explained this previously, but in a different context. The Jews believed in a coming Messiah and a future resurrection. However, they believed their Messiah would come at the end of human history. Messiah would come on the very last day when God permanently restored the fortunes of Israel. Messiah doesn't come in the middle of human history. He comes at the very end. All right? That one person should resurrect right in the middle of human history as the first fruits of a larger future resurrection to come was to them a totally foreign concept. Now listen to resurrection scholar N.T. Wright. N.T. Wright is a man whose theology is sometimes quite good and sometimes quite poor. All right, But he writes very well on the resurrection. All right? He says this, No first century Jew prior to Easter expected it to be anything other anything other than that large-scale, last-minute, all-people event. The resurrection, as far as they were concerned, ought to have been something happening to everybody at the end. But Jesus did not resurrect at the end of human history, but somewhere in the middle. Of course, we don't know where the middle is because time is rolling on. All right? But at his resurrection, Jesus merely brought certain, not all, but certain future realities back into the present like the first fruits of a great harvest. And consequently, when Jesus uses already not language, as he does here in John 5, what Jesus is doing is he is anticipating a revolutionary change and how the Jews thought about resurrection. He's anticipating changes that the rest of the New Testament are going to have to make clear, like a distinction between justification and sanctification, which takes a while. He's anticipating how Paul will later use the language of adoption in Romans 8. You're adopted, but you're waiting for your adoption. In fact, in the New Testament, did you know this? The term last days began with Jesus 2,000 years ago. Did you know this? The last days aren't just out there somewhere in the future. The last days began with Jesus 2,000 years ago. Already, not yet. The resurrection then, friends, inaugurated 
inaugurated the last days, inaugurated the second half of human history, if you will. The resurrection of Jesus put in place certain changes 2,000 years ago, and we're still waiting for the outcome of all those changes in the future. And that means that for now, we live in the space in between. Your whole Christian life is lived out in the already, not yet. Did you know this? Your whole life is in the already, not yet. All right? You get to claim those certain realities as true, like the fact that you're dead and resurrected with Christ, even though you have not yet experienced your resurrection. You get to live out that reality. So in that context, let's just really apply this. Our calling as believers is actually to live out our new position even before we come to fully understand it experientially. You go ahead and you live out your new position. The fact is, I am living in a decaying, dying body, and I am surrounded by a broken, sinful, evil world, and it is groaning under the terrific weight of the curse, Romans 8. But my calling in that world, friends, is not to run and hide. My calling is not to retreat. In fact, my calling is not to endlessly predict the world's impending doom like so many prophecy experts who are consistently wrong but never repentant. We are supposed to live not as if the world is going to crumble at any moment. That's not how we are called to live. We are supposed to live out the reality of the resurrection, anticipating the restoration of all things. That's ultimately where the Bible is headed, not to the destruction of all things, but the restoration of all things through Christ. That's really good news. That's not so much gloom and doom. I'm not not to say there's not bad things in the future. You understand that, all right? But we are supposed to live out the reality that the resurrection has already begun. That there's a first fruits that's already been raised and a great harvest yet to come. That's the reality in which we live. And in my estimation, the problem with so much prophetic speculation in the last generation is that it was not rooted in a theology of Christ's resurrection, but in a local newspaper. You've got to begin at Easter if you're ever going to understand the future. I am absolutely convinced it becomes a pet peeve. And I've been told that by some of the elders here. You get kind of, you know, okay, you got it, all right? But begin with the resurrection. That's the key to understanding the future. Friends, the world has always been full of bad news. Predictions of the world's imminent doom actually go back thousands of years before Christ. I, I can show you records from ancient Assyria. And before, I can show you records that are older than Abraham of people talking about the world coming quickly to an end. All right, But as Christians, we are called to live out the truth that God's good news, God's Messiah, God's resurrection power has already broken decisively into the dark night of the world. He has already spoiled principalities and powers. He has already come and triumphed over evil. This, this, this is the already that we have to live out as we wait for the not yet in the future. So friends, you've really got to root your understanding of the future in the past. When God inaugurated the Son of Man to rule all nations, the future belongs to the Lord. 
Jesus, when he resurrected, said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. And he doesn't give that up to anyone. Right? He is, he is not, he does not relinquish that authority. He doesn't go up to heaven and say, okay, well, somebody else can have control of the earth now. That's not what happened. He rose to a throne to rule over all nations. All right, so friends, I, I think that, you know, yeah, I, I don't want to have my head in the sand. There is, there is evil in our world, all right? And there are evil currents and trends and things that I look at in the news and I'm like, I, I'm very distraught about these things, all right? That's not what I'm saying. But I think that we need to move past a sort of end times paranoia that actually, in, in my estimation, crippled earlier generations from fully disengaging in Christian mission. I didn't plan to say this, but maybe I should say this. When I was, when I was coming through school, you know, there, there, there was a lot of preaching about the world's impending doom. Like, it, it's over. Like, you're not graduating, graduating from college. You know, I, I would hear this constantly. I mean, you got like three months left. And then there was a lot of preaching about the next generation, and it really, really confused me. Like, you, you guys are the next generation. Go out and pastor and go out to the mission field and go out and serve Christ. By the way, there's no future. You know, what am I supposed to do with that then? All right, I, I, I really think that if, if you get so fixated on the world's impending doom rather than the resurrection of Christ, it can actually cripple your efforts to really go out and serve Christ. We, we are called to live out the reality of the resurrection each and every day. All right, in our vocations, we need to labor as if we are just anticipating the resurrection and the restoration of all things. And I know that I probably need a whole sermon or a whole sermon series to really develop this, but I'm not going to do that at this point. I just want to point out that Jesus, in this case, is not really fully developing all the application here, but he is, he is indeed opening for us a new category. He's opening for us a new way of thinking. Think of verses 24 and 25 as a kind of theological placeholder. All right, a theological placeholder for a new way of thinking that's going to become really clear as you read on to the end of the New Testament. Oh, I live in the already, not yet. What does that look like? Well, read Romans, read Ephesians, read Colossians, and you begin to see it. So friends, Jesus' resurrection then just launches the second half of human history, which concludes ultimately with God making all things new. Jesus' resurrection is the first fruits of the great resurrection still to come. And when it comes, Paul says that whole creation will be restored. So, can we live here in the already not yet, between two worlds as it were? Jesus, friends, is giving us space and an opportunity to work out the implications of our salvation through sanctification. And the already not yet, Jesus is giving us an opportunity to labor towards his new creation through our vocations. You have an opportunity. Labor, labor for the new creation through your vocation. And the already not yet, Jesus gives us opportunities to exercise the dominion mandate, which Adam failed at so miserably, but now we have the Spirit. And so let's go try it again. And labor toward the restoration of creation, because that's what Jesus is doing. And in the already not yet, Jesus is giving us opportunities to make disciples in our vocations among all the nations, every tribe and tongue and nation. That's where we live. Oh, look at the clock. I spent a long time with verses 24 and 25, all right? 
But let me just back out for just a minute and remind us of a larger context. The context concerns Jesus' identity, his true identity. Jesus just keeps on equating himself with God. What Jesus is ultimately claiming in verses 24 through 25 is that he is God's agent of salvation and resurrection and that he has already come. He has already broken decisively into the dark night of the world. He has already broken decisively into human history. And God's Messiah who calls the dead to life has already come and claimed all authority over all things. All right, quickly, let me make just a couple more comments then about verses 26 and 27, and I will be done. In verse 26, Jesus says, For the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. And this verse carries us right back to John's prologue. And there we were told that Jesus is the Logos, and the Logos is life. But look very carefully at the words, in himself. Friends, not a single one of us derive life from ourselves. You are derivative. That means your life was sourced outside itself. That is equally true of all plant life, all animal life, all microbial life, all life anywhere and everywhere. Biologists know of no life forms that are self-sustaining or self-creating. There is no such thing. Darwinian evolution just pushes the question of life's origins back through millions of years, hoping we'll just forget about the problem. But it remains as stubborn as ever. Astrobiologists, if you kept up with them, you know, they're, they're, they're spreading the problem all around the universe, hoping that we'll forget about the problem of life's origin. But it remains just as stubborn as ever. All, all life is dependent. All life is contingent. Life, life comes from beyond ourselves. You didn't make yourself. But Jesus quite literally claims that life is bound up in himself. That's astonishing. In this sense, he is categorically different from every other human. He is life itself. What an audacious claim. But if Jesus truly has life in himself, then he can be God's agent of the already, not yet. He can give you life now, and he is going to be there in the future to give you life in the future. In him is life. And now look at verse 27. And he has given him authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. And notice the connection between Jesus' authority and his identity. Jesus has authority because he is the Son of Man. And you know who that is because we've referenced Daniel 7 often. In that glorious scene, the Ancient of Days sits up there on the throne with this liquid river of fire that cascades down from the steps. And Daniel, like Jacob, dreaming in the night, sees the Son of Man approaching that throne with tens of thousands of angels all around him. Now observe, when you and I think about the coming of the Son of Man, we often, if not exclusively, think about him coming to earth. But that is a rather self-referential way of thinking about the coming of the Son of Man. If you think of the coming of the Son of Man like a one-way street, you're going to misunderstand several passages. The coming of the Son of Man is actually a two-way street. Jesus also comes from earth to heaven. 
And Daniel's vision, in fact, the Son of Man comes with the clouds of the earth and he comes to a heavenly throne room. And when he comes to that throne, he receives authority to rule the nations. Now, Matthew's Gospel, if you recall, from years ago, presented an extended argument that Jesus is the Son of Man. And some of Jesus' language was actually quite confusing. Jesus claimed, for instance, that his disciples would not finish their mission to Israel before the Son of Man came. He claimed that not all the disciples would die before the Son of Man came. And Judas, of course, died, but not all of them. Friends, the only way for all those claims to be true, the only way, is for Jesus, the Son of Man, to come in the first century. That's the only way, right? I'm going to come before you finish your mission to Israel. I'm going to come before you all die. He's got to come in the first century before they're all dead. But Matthew's Gospel also told us that Jesus said, the Son of Man is coming at the end to judge all the nations. Well, that happens a long time after the disciples are all dead and gone. So which is it? And if you recall, we weren't able to make sense of all that until we got to Jesus' trial before the Sanhedrin. On trial, this is what Jesus said, from now on, you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. From now on. Doesn't that sound like already, not yet? Jesus already came. Jesus is coming. Jesus will come. The coming of the Son of Man is a permanent new reality. Jesus' statement actually lands him on a Roman cross, but that crucifixion was in fact God's inauguration of his future king, Psalm 2, brought back into time on Mount Zion. And Matthew's gospel concluded with the declaration, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. That's Daniel 7 fulfilled. God's, God's future king has come into the present to rule, beginning at the resurrection. And when Jesus ascended, he came, Acts 1, to his throne, Daniel 7, where he has given dominion over all the earth. And that's why Matthew emphasizes his authority right down at the end. And Matthew, by the way, is not the only gospel writer that emphasizes ongoing coming of the Son of Man. For instance, in John 1.51, we read, Truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven open, and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. And then in John 3, Jesus has a conversation with Nicodemus, and he says, No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. Sounds like a lot of going back and forth, right? Well, friends... Think of it this way. Jesus is the Son of Man who has come to reunite heaven and earth, to stitch back together two worlds that were just ripped apart at the fall. But here's the key to really understanding all that. It doesn't happen in a moment of time. It doesn't happen just like that. The Son of Man's work has already begun. And it's not yet complete. It's just like your adoption. It's already been, it's already true that you're adopted, but it's not yet complete. And so where do you live? You you live right there in the already not yet. You live in the midst of the Son of Man's great restoration project that began at Easter and it will come to full fruition in the future. 
So friends, as we determine to live in the already not yet, can we just really renew our efforts to labor with Christ in our sanctification? That's what's going on here in the already not yet. Laboring with Christ toward his new creation. When we do this, we confess that Jesus Christ is who we claim to be. That's really ultimately what John 5 was all about. Who is Jesus? He is the one who has come as God's inaugurated king to rule the nations from now on. Shall we pray? Father, we thank you for Christ. We thank you for his resurrection. I pray, Lord, that you would help us all to redouble our efforts to live in the already present positional reality that we are resurrected with Christ. And also to anticipate that future day, Lord, when our struggles will be done, our sanctification will be complete, and the nations will be gathered into your great kingdom. Lord, whatever trouble may come, and our world is full of trouble, whatever disasters may come in the future, even this week, Lord, help us just to live out the reality that Christ has already brought us through condemnation into life eternal through his death and resurrection. We pray it for Christ's sake. Amen.